Well, this morning we're in uh, this series that we're calling Violent Grace, uh, which we're following along this book uh, by Michael Card by the same name. And hopefully you have a copy of this book uh, and you've been able to kind of thumb thumb through it a little bit, read over it a little bit. We're not going chapter by chapter, but it kind of gives a good foundation for what we're going after. And we're, and we're seeking to understand throughout this series as we lead up to Easter, we're seeking to understand uh, the picture of the various aspects of the uh, the sufferings of Christ as he leads to the cross and when we may understand the, the work on the cross and kind of expand that to understand really what has been going on there, the, the way in which Christ has healed and, and, and restored that which was broken. And we've been using this book, as I said, to just kind of help us understand a, a better understanding of what Jesus has had to go through, what he's had to endure, and the violence that he took on himself in order to bring grace. The violence that he took upon himself in order to bring grace. And this morning we're going to look at uh, one aspect of this kind of violence that he uh, experienced, and it's this, the verbal violence of mockery and insults and uh, people hurling uh, sarcasm and ridicule to Jesus. In the final hours before Jesus is executed, he's, con- he's already kind of been condemned by this bogus trial that's just kind of a sham of, a, of injustice, and they kind of go right through it real quickly, and he's, he's condemned to death, and then they, they lead him outside of the city walls for his crucifixion, and after the beating, and after the torture, and after all that stuff that has gone on, he's, he's experiencing now this brutal aspect of crucifixion, and in the midst of that, just moments before his execution, he's endured, he endures being ridiculed and insults and being mocked and people spitting at him and poking at him and everything else that you can imagine. The soldiers, that were, the Roman soldiers that were leading him out of the uh, city just begin to kind of mock him and, and ridicule him and say nasty things about him and insult him. And the priests and the religious leaders, the, the people leading the, the people, the, the temple at that time, they... They also accuse him and they insult him and they ridicule him. The people that were passing by on the street, because the way in which crucifixion would happen wasn't in closed doors kind of over on the side, but it was out on the street so that when people would pass by them, they'd look up at them and they would see this person and then they would hurl insults at him. It was was a verbal or a, a, a visual reminder to everyone around, don't mess with Rome. Don't mess with the power authorities. Don't mess with the people that are going to do this kind of stuff to you. If you mess around, if you, if you do the criminal things or if you do whatever, then that's what's going to look at you. And it was a, adding insult to injury to have passerbys to hurl insults at you, to mock you, to, to ridicule you. And it doesn't take very long for Jesus and to experience this verbal violence and for the verbal violence and the insults and the, and the ridicule that he experiences to move beyond just the, the words and beyond just the verbal abuse, but also to the physical abuse. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 15 and his depiction of this. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, you can turn to Mark chapter 15. We'll be in a couple different passages there. If you have a Bible app or something you want to be following along, or if you don't have either one of those and you want to follow along on the screens, you're more than welcome to do that as well. But Mark chapter 15, and I'll start in verse 16. The soldiers, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, so that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put on a purple robe 
on him and twisted together a crown of thorns, set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail the King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put on his own clothes, put his own clothes on him, and then they led him out to be crucified. Well, this morning, we want to take a look at this aspect, the truth that Jesus endured mockery and ridicule so that you and I would know the joy and dignity of eternal life. That he endured mockery and ridicule and insults so that you and I would receive grace. He took on himself the violence of ridicule, insult, mockery, so that we might experience grace. Grace. I love the way that Michael Card describes the scene in his book, Violent Grace. He does on page 71 and 74 of the book, and he says that mockery is verbal violence, and Jesus is subjected to it all the way to the place of his execution. We could safely say that the last words that Jesus heard on the, in the moments before his death were insults. The last thing that he heard, potentially, very safely could say, were insults. And he takes on this violence of insults and the violence of uh, ridicule so that we may have grace. So that we may have grace. So as we consider this portion of Jesus' story and how, what we can understand about God from this story and his willingness to take upon this, to take upon the violence of mockery, ridicule, insults, and what that might teach us about the nature of God, but also what it might teach us about our response to a king who would willingly endure this. As we kind of zero in on this portion of the story, let's pray together and then we'll zero in and focus in. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you and before uh, your word this morning and we humbly ask that you would use it to enlarge in our hearts and our minds, our eyes to see you for who you are. And may we stand in awe of your willingness to endure such violence for our grace, for us, for us. It's in your name we pray, amen. Well, one of the reasons that people insult and mock Jesus, one of the reasons, there are, I'm sure, many, but one of the reasons that they do that is because they misunderstand who Jesus is. They misunderstand his purpose. They misunderstand why he's come. Even the disciples actually misunderstood a little bit of what Jesus was about and what his kingdom was about. They asked him one, of, one time to be able to sit at the right and on the left-hand side of his kingdom. And they had this understanding that he, when he established his new rule or his kind of power, that they wanted to sit at the, at the place of power. They didn't understand him. He had to tell them, in other words, he had to say, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. My kingdom and the way of my kingdom is not the same way that you understand power and authority and the kingdom of this world. My kingdom is different, in other words. My, my values are different. My, percep- my perspective is different. The way of the kingdom is different. But people are misunderstood. And when they misunderstand, they ridicule, they mock, they dismiss Jesus. And the soldiers in the passage I just read, they put this robe on Jesus and they, they twist together these thorns and they place it down onto his head and, and calling out like, 
if it was his crown. And they call out to him, oh, hail, king of the Jews. I mean, it's like this just dripping with sarcasm and with ridicule. It's as if they're saying, if you, you think you're a king, well, here's your crown, king. Kings don't do this kind of stuff. They wanted to display for everyone to see, this is no king. This is just some random person. This is no Messiah. This is just some guy on the corner who's mistaken about who he is. They ridiculed him. If he really was this king, then he wouldn't allow people to smack him around and to spit on him and to put some kind of crown of thorns on him. Ridicule and mockery and insult was the rule of the day here. That's all they wanted to him. And mockery and ridicule and and hurting and violence wasn't new for the Romans. They really loved violence. They like lived for it. They lived to to really hurt people. They had this, this insatiable desire to see someone in pain and see someone go through this kind of torture. So it's not unusual for them to do this kind of parade. They bring all the soldiers around and kind of parade Jesus around him and mock him and point at him and spit at him. And that wasn't unusual. But what is unusual is their choice of thorns for the crown that he was going to wear. What is unusual is a choice of crowns. For the Romans, they would put piece together crowns for everybody. An Olympic or an athlete would get a crown. They'd piece together these vines and these kind of leaves, and they'd place a crown on their head, and then it would design or designate for honor and for respect, and for the victor goes this crown. So it wasn't absurd that they would have a crown, but what is unusual is that they twisted together these thorns for a crown. It was to be a public note of just ridicule, disdain, a joke. You think this is your victor? Victors get crowned. So how about this? We'll give you a crown, but instead of giving you a crown of leaves and the kind of this green crown on your head, we're going to twist together some thorns and we'll press that down on you. You want to be the victor? You want to be the king? This is who you are. It was this running joke for the Romans. Jesus was nothing but a joke, to ridicule, to insult, to mock. But if they could see, if they could see the kingdom of God, the way the kingdom actually operates, then they would see that Jesus is indeed the king. And he is indeed conquering. And he is indeed restoring brokenness. And what I find so unbelievable, even though they didn't understand it, even though they didn't see what was going on, Jesus is taking on himself the brokenness of our fallen world and our fallen nature, and he's reigning victorious now. You see, when sin entered the world back in Genesis, because of our rebellion and our turning away from God, a curse was placed over all of creation and over all of our relationships. It had broken. And rather than the earth producing fruits and vegetation for people, the earth, because of its brokenness and its curse, the earth would produce thorns because of its brokenness. Thorns were to represent brokenness. Thorns were to represent wilderness, difficulty, pain. And Jesus takes on our brokenness, the curse of our sin, and our shame, and he redeems it. In order to recreate the broken world, Christ takes it on himself. In order to redeem the brokenness, he takes it on himself. And he will carry that twisted crown of thorns and the twisted crown of shame and brokenness all the way to the cross. And he will wear that 
and he will bear it, take it on himself, and he will indeed conquer it. Break the chains of our brokenness and of our sin and of our shame. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus bears all of our sin and all of our brokenness so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. But people all over misunderstand his kingdom. They misunderstood his purpose. And his kingdom was not to be a a kingdom of this world. It wasn't going to be a kingdom of military or political power. It wasn't going to be the thing established right here and, and to kind of be exactly what we understand things. It was to heal the brokenness in us and in our create and in this world to lead us to eternal life. And in order to do that, he had to bear our sin and our shame and scorn and the ridicule. He had to take it on himself. And he had to win victoriously. This is what he does. He experiences insults and shame. He experiences this twisted crown of thorns pressed on his head as a big joke. But if they could see what was really happening, they would see the kingdom of God operates differently. So the Roman soldiers mock Jesus, but then the religious leaders mock him as well. And the passerby people uh, walking by, they mock him as well. Picking up the story back in Mark chapter 15, starting or picking it back in verse 29. So those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves, saying he saved others, they said, that he can't even save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of, the, of Israel, come down from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. This kind of scene sounds very familiar. If you're familiar with the story of God, you know that this sounds very familiar to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness where Satan comes to him and says, well, if you really are God, why don't you do this? If you really are the Messiah, why don't you prove it? Why don't you throw yourself down and God will command his angels and you won't even strike your foot against the rocks. Why don't you turn these rocks into bread and you can take care of all this? If you really are the Son of God, then prove it. Prove it. The religious leaders, the ones who are supposed to know the scriptures and know the law, know everything about it, they missed Jesus because they had a preconceived notion of who he would be. They missed the fact that he was indeed the perfect fulfillment of over 60 Old Testament prophecies about who the Messiah would be. They missed it. And they demanded another sign. Just give us another one. I mean, after all that he had said, after all that he had done, after all they had seen him do, They demanded another sign. They didn't see him. They didn't understand him. He didn't didn't fit into their preconceived notion about what a Messiah would be. He he didn't affirm what they wanted him to affirm. He didn't look the way that they wanted him to look, and so they dismissed him. They ridiculed him. They insulted him. If you really are, why don't you prove it, he said. Here's what I want us to hear this morning. People misunderstand Jesus because they have a preconceived notion of who he would be, about what he would be like. And when he doesn't fit in there, when he doesn't fit there, 
they kind of dismiss him. People want him to be a military political figure that's just going to come in and kick everybody out. And when he doesn't fit that, and he willingly endures the shame of the cross, then they dismissed him. They wanted him to be their personal miracle worker, to do whatever they wanted, to heal people whenever they wanted it to be done. And they kind of wanted him to be a genie in a bottle. Just, just do the more tricks for us, Jesus. Do a little more tricks for us. And when he doesn't do that, and when he bears the sin and the, cross of, and the shame of the cross, then they don't know what to do with him, and they dismiss him. And when they don't affirm exactly the way they want to be affirmed, then they don't know what to do with him, and they dismiss and ridicule and insult him. And when he doesn't conform to our preconceived notions, I'm afraid some of us will reject him. And we will only accept a Jesus that we like and that we can understand and that is like us. Isn't that at least some of the reason why people mock and tease and insult others? Because they want to be on the right side. They want to be on the winning side. And when they look at someone else, they've got to be less than. You've got to be wrong. I've got to be right. And they just kind of mock him. If our understanding of God doesn't confront us, if our understanding of who God is and this Jesus doesn't cause us to change our minds, to sometimes really understand what is he doing. If our understanding of God doesn't confront us, doesn't challenge us, doesn't push us beyond what we currently understand, then what we really are doing is worshiping ourselves and we're not worshiping God. We've made God into our image to look like us, sound like us, and conform, conform our already preconceived, understood beliefs of what we think is right. And when he doesn't challenge us, when he doesn't confront us, then what we're really doing is worshiping ourselves. And we will be quick to dismiss, to ridicule, and maybe even mock Jesus. But my prayer for us this morning, as I've thought about this all week, my prayer for us this morning is that we would not simply reduce Jesus and his work on the cross to something that we can manage, something that looks like us, something that we understand completely. But our eyes would be expanded to see the glory of the Son of God who willingly endures insults and mockery, injustice, isolation, brokenness, betrayal. He willingly goes through this in order to bring restoration and wholeness, forgiveness, and eternal life for us. For us. That our eyes would not be reduced, or our, our idea of Jesus would not be reduced to something that just is like us. But we would expand, and our eyes would see the glory and the majesty that is the cross, and what he has done to restore and bring us to wholeness, to, to heal that which was broken. And when we see that, when we see Jesus for who he actually is, and understand the mystery of that, then everything changes. And all of our life is now on the table to be examined by, to be challenged by, to be healed by the Son of God. Everything that we have is now challengeable. Everything is now examinable. Everything is before Jesus. The cross of Jesus becomes our point of redemption. But in order for me to say that, 
In order for me to say that the, the cross of Jesus is my point of redemption, I have to admit and say that there is parts of me that is broken. And so I have to allow the cross of Christ to challenge and confront my preconceived notions of myself and about God. Jesus did not come simply to have all of what we do affirmed. Jesus didn't come to simply have everything that we stand for to just be confirmed and say, yep, you're right, you're the best. Whatever you want to have, have it. Jesus didn't come to be our personal little miracle worker, to do whatever we want him to do, to be a little genie in a bottle, to kind of on speed dial, to say, I need you to do something for me, Jesus. Jesus didn't come to that. He came to rescue us from the power and the presence of sin that is alive in each one of us. Which means that all of my life needs to be examined by God. I need to see him for who he is and not to reduce him to what I can understand and manage so he can be my private little genie to do what I want him to do. But I need to see him for who he actually is. And Jesus endures mockery and insult and ridicule in order that we may know redemption and forgiveness and enter into eternal life. That we would not remain the same when we come to Jesus but that we would see our hearts and our minds, our attitudes, our words, our actions changed. That we would not remain the same. Jesus didn't simply come so that you can remain the same and just be the same old person you've been since forever. He came to restore you. To restore you. Jesus suffers violence at the hands of those he came to save. And what is astonishing about all of that is to watch his response to the violence that he endures. Watch how he responds. We're told that as he's hanging on the cross, he looks down over the crowd of people who are hurling these insults at him and ridiculing him and and belittling him and spitting at him and telling him, well, if you really are God, why don't you prove it and come down off the cross and do all these things. He, He looks over to the crowd of these people and he simply, with compassion, says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. There's compassion in the heart of Jesus, and it tells us something about who God is. But his ways are not our ways. How he willingly endures mockery and shame and scorn and ridicule and insults for the joy of restoring us, of healing us. We're told that he was mocked for sure and put this brokenness on him but the writer of hebrews tells us now that he is now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of god he may taste death for everyone for everyone see through the suffering and the death and the enduring mockery jesus conquers and restores us restores our broken world restores our broken hearts to not keep us as we were, but lovingly confronting us, to lovingly challenging us, to redeem, to restore, and to transform us to be the kind of people that he so desperately wants us to be, the kind of people that will live and enjoy eternity for all the rest of eternity. And so my hope this morning is that we would have such a vision of Jesus and his work on the cross that would lead us to a life of worship, of complete devotion to the one who took all for us, the one who, sh- who bore it all for us. That we would lay our whole lives, our whole minds, our whole actions before the one who can confront 
and challenge and lead us to a new way of living. So in light of all of this, that teaches us a little bit about Jesus, about God, about the culture and the nature of God. Then how do we faithfully live in a life of devotion and of obedience, of worship to Jesus? How do we do that and not disregard him? How do we not brush him off? Two quick suggestions for you this morning. The first one is we need to learn to receive Jesus as he's been revealed to us and not reduce him to what we can understand. I'll say that again. We need to receive Jesus for who he is and how he's been revealed to us, not simply by what we can understand of him. This is what the first mistake of these people who ridiculed and mocked him. They had their preconceived notions of who this Messiah, this king, would be. And when he didn't fit into that, they rejected him. And depending on who you are and depending on who you ask, if you ask someone, what's the nature of God? What is God like? What is, it, what is Jesus like? Then you're going to get all sorts of different ideas. You're going to get all sorts of different things. Some people would emphasize God's love and God's mercy. And well, God is love. And God accepts everything. And God accepts everyone. And other people emphasize God's truth and God's justice and God's righteousness and God's wrath on the one side. We tend to kind of zero in or, or clasp onto the things that we either like about God or the things that we've grown accustomed to and we've heard our whole life. This must be who God is. This must be who God is. But when God doesn't line up with that, and when we read the scriptures and we have a preconceived notion of what God is like, and we read the scriptures and we come to a part of God, God's story where he's, he's challenging that, and he's a little bit different than that. He's bigger than what our preconceived little notions of what God is like. What do we do with that? What do we do with a portion of Scripture where it seems like God is much bigger and grander than what our small, finite minds can understand? Well, we tend to, at least in my experience, we tend to forget about that stuff and go to the stuff that we do understand. And the first thing we need to do if we're going to not reject or ridicule or mock Jesus is we need to learn to receive Jesus for who he actually is and not to reduce him to what we can understand. To hold within this mystery, this wonderfully complex paradox of who God is, where He is both sovereign over this world and yet allows human responsibility at the same time. Where He is both loving and gracious and yet truthful and righteous and a judge and will hold people accountable. Where He is both of these things. It's a profound mystery that we understand. And we ought not be surprised that the Scripture overwhelmingly describes God as holy, completely other than us, not understandable by our finite minds. Isaiah chapter 55, the prophet says this, For my thoughts, meaning God speaking, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So friends, let's not reduce God to what we can understand him to be. But let our hearts and our eyes and our minds be lifted up to who God really is. Let's be in awe of the majesty of God. And not to just kind of let go of things, but to hold that tension and live in the mystery of who God is. And be okay with that. And to to submit our lives to who he actually has revealed himself to be. To not seek to eliminate the tension, but live in the tension. And to learn to embrace the mystery of God. That he is so much 
holier than we've ever begun to imagine. So much better, so much bigger, so much broader. And the second thing to do is in humility, when we come to understand Jesus as he actually is, the reigning victorious king to bring redemption, when we see him for who he actually is, then we humbly turn towards him. We humbly turn towards him. When we see Jesus for all the scorn and betrayal and ridicule and insults and everything that he has taken on himself, the violence that he has allowed himself to endure for grace for us, then we humbly turn towards him. We don't turn away. We're told that one of the criminals who's crucified on the side of Jesus, moments before his death, turns towards Jesus, recognizes him for who he is. Luke chapter 23 records it this way. One of the criminals who hung, on, who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. He said, don't you fear God? Since you were under the same sentence, we are getting, excuse me, we are justly punished for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And hear this. Jesus answers, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, when you see Jesus for who he actually is, and don't reduce him to things that you can understand and kind of wrap a nice little bow around when you just reduce him, but you see him for who he is, we don't ask for more signs and wonders. We don't ask him to be our personal miracle maker. We don't ask him to do things for us. We turn to him for the grace and the life that he will give to us. For the mercy that he gives. When we see the violence that is, that is given and lashed out onto Jesus, we don't ask him for more things. We turn with humility and we receive grace. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, wherever you are understanding who God is and what he has called to you, would you be amazed at the God of the universe who endures violence for your sake? Would you be amazed this morning that the God of the universe would step into eternity to receive on himself the violence of ridicule, of insult, of, of betrayal, of standing isolated alone, of injustice in order to provide grace for the joy of seeing you and your life restored and transformed into a person that would enjoy the rest of eternity? Would you receive that this morning and turn towards Christ? Turn towards him. And as we turn towards him, we do it in humility. And we lay out our whole life before him, our eyes, our minds, our actions, everything before him, so that we might be conformed to his image. Not that he is conformed to our image. That we might be conformed to his image and may the grace of God meet us in that time.